Ephesians 1, 3-6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He, as, even as he chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. He destined us in love to be His sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. Three weeks ago, some of you will remember we were in Hebrews chapter 6, and in passing I alluded to a possible series of messages that I would like to give, and I am, Lord willing, now going to give those, but let me take you back to that verse and just read it to show you the jumping off place for this series of messages that begins this morning. It was Hebrews 6.11 and it went like this. We desire each one of you to show the uh, earnestness, the, the same earnestness in realizing the full assurance of hope unto the end. In other words, it's God's will for you to have the full assurance of hope unto the end. Or to say it another way, it's, it's God's will for you, according to Scripture, that you know you are heaven-bound and that you will not fail to get there. God does not want a question mark to be written over your lives. He doesn't want you to waver and to wonder, am I really going to make it? Or have I really been saved? Or will I really get to heaven? Will I really fall in the judgment? He doesn't want you to labor under the weight of that kind of uncertainty. Labor to have full assurance of hope. And in passing, I said, there are grounds for hope that we need to attend to as a church. And the point of the messages that are about to begin is this text. But before I, I jump into Ephesians, let me say a couple of words about two ways of pursuing assurance. There are two ways. They're both right. They're both biblical. But I think the second one is far more important than the first one. So let me just talk briefly for a moment about the first way to pursue assurance. It is possible, you know, for believers who have authentic faith to go through periods of time in which they do not have the full assurance of hope. I just take that for granted on the basis of that text, but let me read another one. 1 John 5.13 I write this to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. In other words, the heart that is truly believing and truly united to Christ in saving faith may go through periods of time in which there is a question mark written over your life and your conscience is wavering and you are wondering whether or not you are real and whether or not the promises will come true for you. It is possible for that to happen. Many believers have faced that kind of struggle in their own lives. Now, the first way of pursuing assurance over against that struggle is to examine yourselves to see whether or not you find evidences of grace, evidences of new birth, evidences of new desires, evidences of new disciplines, evidences that God is at work in your life. 
For example, this is what Peter meant in 2 Peter 1.10 where he said, Therefore, brethren, be more zealous to confirm your call and election. Be zealous to confirm it. And you confirm it by living it out. And therefore, assurance flows in part from the living out of your calling. Or, uh, Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 13. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Prove yourselves, or do you not know yourselves that Christ Jesus is in you if you do not fail the test? Now, Thomas Watson was an old uh, Puritan 350 years ago, and the Puritans wrestled more than anybody else with this whole issue of assurance. And let me read you a helpful quote on this first way of pursuing full assurance that Watson gave. He said, if a malefactor be in prison, how shall he know that his prince hath pardoned him? Why, if a jailer come and knock off his chains and fetters and lets him out of prison, then he may know that he is pardoned. So how shall we know that God hath pardoned us? Why, if the fetters of sin be broken off and we walk at liberty in the ways of God, this is a blessed sign of our pardon. So the first way to pursue the assurance of faith is to examine yourself and to note the evidences of grace, evidences of new liberty from sin, evidences of new affection for God, evidences of new delight in His Word, evidences of new courage in witness, evidences that God is real in you. You have been born of God. The Holy Spirit is there. That's the first way. There's another way, a vastly, I believe, more important way, especially for people given to overmuch introspection and melancholy and despair and questioning and doubting. Such people probably ought not too often be told to examine themselves. There is something else that they should examine. Hebrews 3.1 puts it like this, very simply, in two words. Consider Jesus. Or Hebrews 12, 2. Look to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of your faith. In other words, this second way of pursuing assurance is paradoxical. In a sense, what you want is a subjective reality in here. Not a person in this room does not want the subjective reality of a deep-seated peace and assurance that all is well with God and it will be this way forever. I can't imagine anybody not wanting that. Everybody wants that real, deep, inner working of peace and joy and settled confidence. The paradox is that the more you look in to examine how good it is, to examine if it's all right, to examine if it's there, to examine if you are confirming it enough in the way you live and the attitudes you have, the more unsure, the more unsure you can become that it's there. And in fact, the most effective way is to stop spending too much time examining whether it's being confirmed by your subjective experiences and begin to consider Jesus, to begin to get on the objective things of the world. Christ, God, salvation, and what He has done. And in doing that, 
God, I believe, loves to glorify his objective work of redemption by causing there indirectly to well up inside of you the subjective confidence that it's all real and I'm in it. That's the paradox I mean. By taking your eyes off of the subjective things that you want and putting them on what God has done to make a life secure for you, there is a kind of indirect working by the Spirit within, by those things, to create what you wanted inside and couldn't get by so much preoccupation with yourself. William Cooper, you may remember a few weeks ago we talked about the hymn writer William Cooper. He was a very melancholy man and uh, despairing of his own salvation much of the time. He is an example of this paradox. Uh, he went so deep into a depression that he had to be institutionalized. Uh, and he was at St. Albans Insane Asylum and walking in the garden one day by God's grace, picked up a Bible and he read a very objective verse. It went like this. God put Christ forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. In other words, he read Romans 3.25 and this is what he wrote later about that moment. Immediately I received the strength to believe it. And the full beams of the Son of Righteousness shone upon me. I saw the sufficiency of the atonement He had made, my pardon sealed with His blood, and all the fullness and completeness of His justification. In a moment I believed and received the gospel. Unless the Almighty Arm had been under me, I think I should have died with gratitude and joy. And so the second way of pursuing assurance is the way we should spend most time on, I believe. It is a looking outside of ourselves to the objective reality of God and Christ and redemption. All that God has done from eternity past and will do to eternity future for his people. And in focusing on the objective work of God outside ourselves, God is pleased to glorify that by creating passionate subjective assurances in our heart. It doesn't work the other way around by and large. So I'm going to preach, Lord willing, eight messages on God's invincible purpose, foundations for full assurance. And I pray that the upshot, like I prayed earlier, would be that out of full assurance there would flow soul-saving power and mind-saving truth and city-saving justice and relationship-saving love and world-saving mission. But I believe the ground of that kind of life is the full assurance of hope. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Let's read them again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul begins with worship. He's blessing God. And then he gives his reason why. This God has blessed us. In Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now that is an awesome statement. Not a person in this room feels right now as subjectively full of the totality of all of heaven's blessings as you would like to feel. 
I mean, that is such an awesome statement that every blessing that heaven has to give, notice the tense, has been given to us. We have been blessed with those things. It's made over to us in Jesus Christ. And then come the foundations of full assurance of this reality. And the very first one mentioned is, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. My first message is this. God's purpose of salvation for his people is invincible, unstoppable, undefeatable, because it begins in God's election, God's choosing of his people to be saved before the world was even created. Your salvation did not begin with your choice of God. It began with God's plan of redemption, his plan that Jesus Christ die and rise again, and his plan that you be chosen out and through union with Christ be brought into sonship forever and ever. Now, there are many people who don't believe this, thousands who don't believe this, Instead, they read a text like this and they say, I'll give you the standard way of taking the truth out of this text. They say that God did not choose individuals. God did not choose any particular people to save, passing over others and leaving them to unbelief and rebellion. All God did was to choose his son and any who happen by their self-determining power to put themselves into the son. It's as though it were like the Super Bowl. The officials of the football leagues do not choose who goes to the Super Bowl. They simply choose that the winner of the playoffs go to the Super Bowl. So if you are good enough or can do whatever needs to be done to win the playoffs, then they will choose that you play in the Super Bowl. So the, the standard interpretation of this text for those who reject the sovereignty of God in personal election is that God does not elect individuals. He elects an undefined mass of humanity who, by their own election, get into Christ. And once they have done the decisive work of getting into Christ, then God says, you are now my elect in Christ. And the argument is that it's obvious from the words that that's the case. It says, God chose us in him. And my response to that is, first, it's not at all obvious from the words that that's what that means. Because these words are not strained in the least in their meaning by saying, God chose us, particular individuals, to be saved by coming into union with Jesus Christ. When it says God chose us in Christ, 
the meaning is fully satisfied by saying he chose us in relation to Christ. He did not choose us to do an in run around Jesus. I'll save you around Jesus. I'll save you in Jesus. I'll save you through Jesus. I'll save you by means of Jesus. Jesus is the way I save people whom I choose. That fully satisfies the meaning of this sentence. God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In fact, I think the word choose loses its essential meaning. If you say he really chose nobody in particular, he only chose Christ. And then anybody who happened to get into Christ, because the word choose means select out from a number, which he does not do according to this interpretation. But now, these words in verse 4 will never settle this issue. They just never will, because by themselves, they could be construed either way. If we didn't have anything else to go on in this context or elsewhere in Paul, then there would be no way to resolve, I believe, which of those two meanings is to be given to this verse 4. God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And so what I want to do... And show you why I am persuaded that the meaning to be given to verse 4 is, God chose John Piper to be saved and to become his child by bringing him into relationship with Jesus Christ. God chose me in union with Christ to be saved and all who are his. If you want to turn with me to see the text where I'm going to try to settle the issue, it's 1 Corinthians 1, verses 27 to 30. That's the first one we'll look at. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 27 to 30. Verse 26 sets the stage by telling the church, and I could just say to you the same thing now, I say, consider your calling, brothers and sisters, consider your calling, which means think about how you were called into the church. Think about how you moved from world to church, death to life, blindness to see. Think about this now. That's what verse 26 says. Think about, consider your calling. How did it happen that any of you got here this morning? Either because you are coming uh, in search of Christ or because you are in Christ and want to worship Him. How did that happen? To whom do you give credit? How do you account for this? Now that's what these verses are designed to explain and then spin out the implications of our boasting. Verse 27. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Now what this verse, or these verses, are saying very clearly is that God did not simply choose a, an undefined mass of humanity who happened to choose to get into Christ. That is not possible in view of this text. God chose specific foolish individuals and called them into Christ. 
He spoke, he, he chose some weak individuals and he called them into Christ. He chose some low and despised individuals and he called them into Christ so that none of them could boast. The whole issue in this text is how do people get into Christ? The issue is not how did those who happen to get into Christ totally on their own initiative and their own decisive, final, autonomous, free willpower, how did they relate to each other? The issue is, what's the implication of the fact that the ones who are there, poor, low, weak, despised, God put there? That's the point of the text. And as though Paul knew what was coming down the pike in terms of false teaching, he comes to verse 30 and he says, literally, from him, that is from God, you are in Christ Jesus. Or let's take two other versions. New American Standard Bible. By God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus. Or New International Version. It is because of him, God, that you are in Christ Jesus. You can't fail to miss the point that Paul is protecting the doctrine of election from the very misunderstanding I have just articulated that is rampant in the world today. He is saying, if somebody comes along and says, all God did was choose Christ and then wait and watch to see who by their own free, sovereign, autonomous will would get themselves into Christ and then say, oh, now that's my people, I'll take that group. If that's what is being thought, he writes verse 30 to say, No, those who are in Christ are in Christ by God's doing. And therefore, if those in Christ are chosen, God chose to put them in Christ. Unless you think that this particular interpretation that I'm holding out here as a common one is maybe something that scholars worry themselves with off in academic places. Friday night, we had a great missions in the manse gathering at, at my house and it was one of those provocative and good ones that I can remember because it was mostly about this chronological approach to teaching the Bible and the gospel to unreached peoples who have no knowledge of the Bible and the gist is that you start with Genesis and who God is and the creation of the world and you don't introduce Jesus until you get to the New Testament and so people are primed for the solution after a long teaching and people right now like David Michael and Dave Rose are using this in the high rises across the and, and uh, over at Unisys and teaching contemporary Americans who don't know any Bible and don't know any biblical or theological background. And so while I was waiting for people to leave at the end and we were sitting around talking, I picked up one of these books. There are about seven or eight volumes of them that had been produced in order to train missionaries how to teach tribes the meaning of the Bible. And I, I saw on the front of one it said, Ephe Romans and Ephesians. I said, hmm, I'm going to preach on Ephesians. I'll, I'll look at the Ephesians one. And so I opened it, and right there, just as predictable as you could believe, was this interpretation of Ephesians 1-4. So missionaries are being trained now all over the world to tell new tribes all over the world that when they hear that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, it does not mean He chose any particular people. It just means he chose Jesus to be his elect son and then he left it to the world what the makeup of the body of Christ, the kingdom in heaven would be. And then he would say, well, I'll, I'll work with that. That is common all over the world and it's not what the verse means. 
Let me take you to James chapter 2, if you want to go with me. The reason I choose James 2 out of the half dozen other texts, people walked out at the end of last service handing me pieces of paper. Use this text. Use this text. <laughs> they fine. I know they're there. I just don't have but a half an hour to preach. James 2, verse 5. I choose, first of all, to give you another witness besides Paul, lest you think Paul thought this way and not others, but also because there's an interesting twist that's almost the same as 1 Corinthians 1.27, but different. In 1 Corinthians 1.27, the point of the doctrine of election was the practical sense of you consider your own call so that you don't boast in man, but boast in the Lord. In James 2.5, it's consider your brother's call lest you demean him. Let's read it. James 2.5. Listen, my beloved brethren. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Now, the structure of thought there is exactly the same as Paul's. How did poor people come to be in the body of Christ, for goodness sakes? How did these ramshackle people get in here and sit themselves down in the very front, nice, clean pew? Something was going on here that was very ugly to God, very ugly to James. And he writes and he says, you know how those people got in here? God chose them. Watch it. Now that's the point. The, the, the point is not there's an undefinable mass of people who make their way into Christ by some willpower and then God says, good, fine, I've got a body to deal with now and I will call them mine. I will choose this body now that they have chosen me. That's not what the text means. Let's go back to Ephesians 1. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Let me close by just bearing witness to my own belief about my own standing. And I hope that the words I used can simply be echoed in your own heart. I believe that God knew me personally before He created the world. He knew me. He knew John Piper. And he set his gaze upon me. And then he set his gaze upon his son Jesus. And then he set his gaze upon me. And he contemplated that I would become a sinner. And that I would be utterly, utterly, utterly unworthy of his sonship. And then he looked back at his son... And He chose me to come into union with His Son and to be His child forever. I do not believe that God chose me because I was already in Christ, but that I might, by His election, come into Christ. I don't believe He chose me because I was already a believer or that He saw that I would believe 
but that he chose me in order that I might believe. And I never would have come to believe had he not chosen me. I don't believe he chose me because I was good or holy as he contemplated me. He chose me that I might, by his initiative, become good and become holy. Everything I am, everything I hope to be, I owe to the fact that God has freely chosen me. My faith, my hope, my ministry, my work are not the ground of my election. They are the fruit of my election. The foundation, the ultimate, rock-solid, unstoppable, undefeatable, unwavering ground of my assurance is that before the foundation of the world, God gazed upon me and for his sovereign free reasons apart from any merit in me said, you are mine. And therefore I look at the world now and with all my weakness and all my failings and all my remaining defect and all the ups and downs of my assurance and I say into the face of every one of them, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? I hope that you can say that. And I hope that in contemplating the reality of God's work outside of you, before the world ever existed, there will rise up by God's grace in your heart a bubbling sense of assurance that I am His. And that my relationship to Him is rooted not in some wobbling, fragile, frail act of mine, but in His sovereign act on my behalf to choose me and redeem me, and someday, most assuredly, because of the blood of Jesus, glorify me.